Hello and welcome to the Analytics Show, the podcast of business through the lines of data science. But together, we'll dive into learning and sharing where various industries are heading and how data and analytics is at the heart of shaping business growth and productivity. Let's spark different ways of thinking about data and analytics that is relevant to you and prepare your business for future disruption. I'm your host, Jason Tan. I'm delighted you could make it on this journey with us. Hey guys, to continue to get support tips, techniques, and tools, and learn from the expert, hit that subscribe button wherever you are so we can keep in touch and continue our lifelong learning together. Hello, hello. Good morning, Rob. Thank you so much for dialing in all the way from Netherlands, Europe to do this podcast interview. Super excited to chat with you. I think we sort of like interact online a couple of times, but finally, it's the first time we chat on uh, like in the Zoom. <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you for having me. I mean, nowadays you communicate over all these platforms, right? But it's nice to talk to you in person now. Yeah, exactly. I think that is what makes the world is amazing now that how we are so apart from the world and then we can easily talk to each other. Now, let's get things started. Yes. And, uh, when I was doing my research to prepare for this interview, I found something really interesting. You study music. That that is yes. what yes. you do. Well, tell us a bit more about this experience, and uh, be curious to know later on that how that is helping what you do right now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it's it's funny because you're not you're not the uh, not the first who've noticed this. No, it's the. Uh, I mean, so depends how far back you want to go, but I've always, when I was young, I was just interested in, you know, in, in making, making things. So when I was, yeah. you know, in my, in my early teenage years, the, uh, I figured out a couple of things out, right? So I figured out that I understood, uh, certain types of music yeah. and, and that has to do with it, it just has to do with, I remember, I still remember that when I was like really young. So I was maybe like, you know, eight or nine, um, that I was a friend's house and I sat behind the piano and just, you know, pressing the keys on the piano that I understood the concept, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. That, that, that didn't mean that I could play something, but you go like, oh yeah, I get it. I know how this thing works. <laughs> and that, that took me like an afternoon to figure out. And I had the same thing with, um, with, with software in the early days. I remember um, around that same age when my, when my dad brought home, um, in my memory it's an IBM XT, but that might be wrong, but that's it, what's it in my memory. And it had QBasic on it. And I was just playing around with that. And I was just a, I mean, again, this is this was very, very basic, right? The very stuff you do as a child. But I, I got, I understood how that worked. So to answer your second question about um, how is that helping me? Well, it, it's it's helping me in two ways. So it's, it's helping me first in just, it's just a way to be expressive, you know, creatively. So you mm. can you can do that in building business. You can do that in building software, writing software. You can do that in writing or playing music. For me, that's not very different. So it's just the, yeah, that's just wired. And secondly, it's helping me that, um, building a software business, especially open source software business, 
is is very similar to starting a career in music, what I see from friends around me. So I see friends around me now, or I wouldn't say friends. Friends would be too, too big of a word, but like people that I know from studying back in the day and for a short stint, I was in Boston at Berkeley and I, a few people who were there are now, you know, pretty successful. Wow. And the way that you build a successful career is very similar to building a uh, successful uh, open source project. The, the things you need to do to get there, it's, it's very similar. It's a, uh, so, you know, that's uh, that that's how it's helping me, but it's like, uh, it was just, it was just great, man. I still love it. So it's, uh, uh, but you know, well observed, that's true. I can imagine when I was coding and especially when I got into that flow and then with my headphone on, I imagine, I sometimes almost imagine that I was playing piano. Although I didn't, I didn't really go mm. to music school. <laughs> I don't know how to play piano. But the way that typing and coding to me, when I get into that flow with the music playing in my head, I, I felt like I was playing piano, like, like a world-class piano. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I think so that's what it is, right? So it's the, you, you, you use the word flow. That's there's certain things that can get us in a state of flow, right? So that's playing music, yeah. that's writing software, can be cooking, can be working out in the gym or running or that kind of stuff, right? That these kind of things or doing research that, that you can get in a certain type of flow and, and, um, and that flow state is the same for, for all these things, but you, you know, you, you don't, you don't get in a state of flow, you know, drinking beer or something. So it's like, it's, you know, it's like yeah. it's just specific things you can do. So in that sense, they're the same for me, but it's a, uh, yeah, no, I recognize it. Yeah. At what point did you decide to change your career direction from music to software to building a business? Oh, so that, that assumes that I made a career shift, but I didn't, I, oh. I never, uh, so I started my first software company when I was 15. No and, way. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 because the thing was, I so I'm born in '85. So um, when I was 15, it was the year 2000 when the first e-commerce um, uh, websites. Came. Very, if you remember back in the days, right? Very basic. And I was uh, helping people um, who needed like very basic, you know, um, uh, uh, web shops or those kind of things or, yeah. or things adjacently related. So I remember that before I was twenty, I um, I was I worked at a, a for a, um, uh, an, it's a transportation company, and you had all these you know these drivers the um, from these truck drivers, and I wrote the software to automate the um, uh, the, the check-in process. All these people came in and they had to still write that down by hand, but they bought this <laughs> machine, this badge. I wrote that. I wrote software for a um, uh, um, for a logging of hours uh, for a, um, a people who are working in construction. I wrote an, a little e-commerce platform for a company selling um, uh, um, lighters and and pens with your name on it. And it was before I was twenty. So and then when it was time to study, I was like, I'm going to study music because I love music and I can make some money writing software. And very naive also, right? But I've never, so, and then I was done studying and then I did a couple of music projects that I really wanted to do. 
Yeah. Um, you can still find those online, so jazz projects. And I paid for these projects with um, uh, uh, by the so by software, writing software. So I never, I never made a. Um, um, it didn't feel like a career change because I was just always writing software to make money. And and the thing was that the um, then when I got a little bit older, like mid twenties, I was like, oh, actually, I really, I really like this software thing. I actually like that more. Yeah. So I just started to do that more, but it was never. It's I've never in my life um, did something as like a career move or something. It was just a, just, you go with the flow and then with the flow brings you somewhere. Yeah. So, um, so that's the, that's the back, that's the backstory to that. I felt that it is a good thing that you realize software is really your thing at your mid 20, because for a lot of people, uh, it would take including myself, it would take us a very long time to realize what exactly we really want. So to realize that at the point of like mid-20, I think it must be surreal. And did that help you to be a lot more focused in doing what you were wanting to do? Did that help you to be more focused in building up not only career, but also the business to especially the foundation of what you are doing right so now? Oh, that's a great question. So I've, I've never done anything. I mean, with a few exceptions when I was younger, but he, I never done anything specifically to, or like as a career move or to make money. Yeah. But it was like, oh, you know, I need to make money or I need to make a living <laughs> or something. I just never did that. I just never did that. That just came with it. Um, and I am just, that's just, it has to do with that creative process. I just like to make stuff. Yeah. Right? So now with, with Weaviate growing, just figuring out how to do that, like with the right people and, and enabling these people to do what they need to do, making sure that everybody has fun in the journey, because I believe that if everybody has fun, they, you know, they make greater things. Right. And, um, that and now I'm, I'm that, but that's a creative process, right? So that is you try to figure that out, and it, yeah. it terribly annoys me if I make a mistake or if I'm wrong. Then I go like, ah, how could I have been wrong about this? Why didn't I see this? And uh, and that's a lot of fun. And uh, so it has to do with the with the with the creative process. It's just I like to be, um, you know, I like to be in the game, right? Uh, rather than standing on the side. Um, observing the game and uh, and 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 that's 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 why I do it so it's not a and so to your question did it prepare me for it I guess so but it just prepared me in the sense of just I'm doing so many things at you know so mm. I'm learning all the time so and then I go like oh you know I learned something I mean sometimes I meet these founders and these people are so smart and they are very smart and they know a lot of stuff and I, I just I'm not that so I'm just a guy that just needs to do a lot of it and then just by learn by doing. And I'm always very jealous of these people, but I'm just a person who just likes to build stuff. And I go, oh, you know, I figured something out <laughs> and maybe I, you know, and maybe I can repeat it or, or um, help somebody else with it. So that's how it prepared me. Yeah. 
I was reading your 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 blog article of the four year anniversary, and I think I remember you were saying that you know before Vivian, because what Vivian is, you guys were doing the IoT stuff, like uh the data for the IoT, you know all those sort of thing. Do you want to share with the audience who never have a chance to read the the blog article? How did you yeah, that's switch a from IoT to this uh vector database? So the funny thing is, um, also here it was it was not a it was not a shift but an organic thing. So I love that you asked this question. So let, let me explain it to you. So sure. I was working on an IoT project, and um, I think in twenty sixteen or twenty fifteen, and one of the problems that I saw was that um, if you have different vendors of different um, uh, um, you know, manufacturers or, you know, OEMs, whatever, that they talk about the same things. So it could be an elevator or an escalator or whatever you, you know, what have you, but they were not using the same language to yeah. describe uh, what they were doing. So if you wanted to have, if you wanted to capture that into an IoT platform, you somehow needed to figure out how to connect those dots. And the, back then, the answer to connecting those dots were linked data. Right? Yeah. So related to semantic web and those kind of things, ontology creation, blah, blah, et cetera. But then I figured out that yeah, that doesn't work because, um, I mean, I was not like the first, I mean, people figured that out just before that already, but that was when I figured it out because the thing was people were not agreeing on how to call things. So, you know, um, escalator manufacturer one might call things by a certain name in escalator um, uh, manufacturer two just had different names to describe the same thing and they had yeah. all good arguments why they were doing that so then i thought what if we would use machine learning to solve that problem because back then we had like glove and fastex and those kind of things and um and i was like basically if these things are not related to each other um directly through linked data, then they, they might be related indirectly. Yeah. Uh, and I can make an implicit relation in vector space. Yeah. And that's how the idea was like, and then we were like, oh, wait a second. The interesting problem is not actually to solve, you know, linking the data together. The interesting thing is like doing search with vector embeddings. Yeah. And then the question was like, how do we call that? So how do you call that? Right. So because Vector database, vector, that, that term was not used yet. Correct. So um, then the first term we used was knowledge graph. Oh. And then we were like, it's, yeah. It's and then it was like, hard. oh, yeah, but it's not a, yeah. But then we were like, it's not a knowledge graph. It's just yeah. not that. It, because it's like a, so then we came up with another term. I, I, I don't even remember what that was. And then we're like, no, it's about the vector. So then we went to vector search engine. And then some other people start to emerge. I, I think we saw another company. I, I, I think uh, um, uh, the, 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 the Chinese players uh, the, from uh, the Apache project from Milvis, basically. And they were, and I think they started to use Vector Database and we had Vector Search Engine and then stuff morphed into that, uh, that the industry started to call it Vector Database. And then we saw, saw more Vector Databases. But so it, the idea emerged from um from we can use um vector search 
to link data objects together. That was the original idea. And it was only in 2017 or 2018 that we were like, oh, wait a second. The power is not linking them together. I mean, that's great. That's a great use case. But the um, the, the database should be able to, it's it's a vector database. That's the thing, right? So, uh, and, um, and that was what was figured out. So it was very organic. That grew very organically. Yeah. In the very same article, you described that in the early day, just like you were saying, right, that people were not familiar with the use cases, people were not familiar with the technology. So it was very challenging to sell the product. My question for you, though, why was it the case when Google is so big already and the fact that when we go to Google, and I imagine that this is already back in 20. Uh, 16 or 2018, where, where Google is already so powerful, where not only when we search for one particular term, the semantic result, search result they give to us is already good. Why do you think people will still not get the idea of what you were already achieving, of yeah. giving them the Google in their head? Why do you think that's the case of, of yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I have a theory about that. So, I mean, it's not my theory, it's an existing theory. Because, and I need to give you a little bit of context to explain this. So, yes, the, the moment I really knew this is, this is an opportunity was I was, uh, back in the day, I was part of a community called Google Experts and or developer experts and then you do you know google products and it was very nice because then if you demoed the google a google product then um you know you could they you know you, you could travel you, you they, they even paid for your hotel it was really great so it was a really nice program from from uh, from google and i was doing that for google cloud and i asked the um uh, the community manager there i said okay are you okay if i demo weaviate but i just demo it on google cloud and they were like, yeah, that's fine. So that's, that's what I did. And then in that capacity, I was in, um, at Google IO in 2016 and I fact checked what I'm about to say. I fact checked this, that it's actually true. I was in, I was in at Google IO and, um, Sundar Pichai went on stage during the keynote and he said, we're going to move from mobile first to AI first. And I was like, oh, I understand what they're doing. They're using these vector embeddings to um, to index data, and yeah. later I learned that, for example, the uh, the ads the, the ads recommendations on Google Search is just a big vector search engine. Exactly. But now the interesting question is like, so why didn't they build an early product of that? And the answer to that question, I think, or I believe, sits in um, there's a nice. Um, uh, management theory, which is the the um, is described in the book The Innovator's Dilemma, ah, right? yeah, where yeah. it describes yeah where it describes disruption theory, and I think that if we look at vector databases right now, that is uh, uh, disruption theory in action. It it literally follows the path of um, as described in disruption theory. So these big companies, I mean, not only Google, but also existing bigger database companies, right? They were so busy with, they're so busy with their top line products 
Yeah. I remember that I spoke to to uh, people at big database companies, and I honestly don't remember who it, it might have been Elastic, might have been MongoDB. I, I don't remember two years ago, and they were like, "Oh, these vector embeddings, nobody asks for that, right? We don't care." And back then, the vector database was still just in a very early stage, but we kept building and building, and then people started to adopt, right? So people were like, "Hey, this is cool." There was this this transition from people going like, "Huh, what is that?" to, "Oh, I get it." And we kept building, building not only product but also community, and yeah. and uh, um, uh, um, uh, we were represented online and that kind of stuff, giving talk, podcast, writing content, you name it. So all of a sudden, when people saw the light and started to understand how they could use these vector embeddings, the big players were just not there. They were just not. They, it was not. It was not an option. You could not choose. Even if you would say, I want to do this with a Google product, there was nothing there. Yeah. So um, uh, that was a way for us to position uh, us, us in there. And uh, I mean, now they figured it out. <laughs> but uh, um, that was the reason why we could keep, keep building without them being there. I think in the hindsight, it's a good thing that uh, they did bother with it though, because it gives you the opportunity to be able to continue building it. Imagine like if they start doing it straight away, it could be very challenging as well. Yeah, but you know what the thing is, you know what the thing is, Jason, is like, it, I mean, if you, it, looking back in history, that is always simple, right? Yeah. So the big money maker for Google today is as far as I'm aware, unless I'm wrong, but I'm as far as I'm aware, is still ads. Yeah. It's still the the majority of the money maker is ads. Yeah. The engine serving ads on Google search is a big vector database. Correct. So yeah. it was they had it. It's in front of them. It's right there. But you know, then creating the product out of it, building the business out of that. The the probably the 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 um, it's a big organization, so probably politics and those kind of things play a role, slowing stuff down. I'm pretty sure that there was somebody somewhere in the offices of Google saying, "We need to build a product out of this." But this person was or not hurt, or could not get the the budget, or got the budget and the project was killed. God knows what happened, but that paved the way for startups like Wevia to just exactly go. And I think that answered the question, you know, when people were asking, especially those, some people, they, they start, they like asking the question, what if Google do this? What if Microsoft does it? What interview does it? Yeah. I think it's like you say, it's entirely possible that they, this big, big player, they do it, right? And in fact, they have the capability of doing it. And sometimes they, like you say, they already have it, but the, these these organizations, they are just so big. The politics, the various priority. It also means that there is opportunity for us to start up. Like, look at yeah. Zoom, look at Dropbox, look at yourself, Vivian. There, yeah. there are always opportunity as long as we are willing to try it out. <laughs> or yes. Yes, and, and, and this is why I like that uh, uh, that disruption theory, the disruption theory so much because it, it captures that problem. So, yeah. so the answer to the question is why isn't big company X doing this? And the answer is because they are, because they aren't, 
that's the that's the answer and exactly. and but the beautiful thing is is that's how the market works and that allows for people to build new startups with new ideas right and um and so the question why isn't whatever big company doing this that's a great question and the answer is because they aren't yeah it's just a it's a it's a that's the answer and and <laughs> and then you need to seize that opportunity yeah exactly now took us a long time to come to this question but tell us a little bit more about your company weaviant i must confess uh disclaimer I am a user, I'm a paid customer of the Weaviant. Uh, we use it in our product of the Engage AI. And I call that as my second brain as well, uh, which is literally uh, what the whole idea is about. Tell us about the <laughs> Weaviant, especially your role as a CEO and co-founder. Yeah, so first of all, thank you for being a user and a customer. That's very, that's great. And second, so the, um, so, okay, my role as, so the role as founder and the role as CEO is very different. So uh, um, being a founder just means, you know, that you were part of starting the company. <laughs> That's kind of it. And, uh, but that gives you like a, an early being part of it early. And, and then when we were like very small, like maybe five or six people, then we just had a group of people that were all very smart at doing stuff. So for example, um, HN, the the the, the CTO, he's just yeah yeah he's just amazing, right? So he's like he's really responsible for the the real nitty gritty database part, really building yeah. the infrastructure. Yeah. So and then you get all these people that are smart, and then when you're like very small as a company and you might raise a little bit of money, then you basically take from the whole group you you take the least smart person, in that case that was me, and then you make that person CEO. So that is kind of how it works. And because that person that can then run around and do all kinds of things. <laughs> and then before you know it, before you know it, you're 50 people. And then that, that co-founder is still CEO. But um, um, uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make is the, <laughs> is the, um, um, the, what was so fun of that journey was like to learn um, how it is to, run an infrastructure company that is so great infrastructure is so great because it's 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 just it's so nice so for example what you just mentioned the fact that you know that we help power your product that is just that makes me proud i like that and then we see all these customers and all these users building great things and we're helping them and that is just amazing that's just that's fantastic right or sometimes people write blog posts about what they're doing with vvate and they go like, oh that's amazing right so, so, um, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. And then the thing that I learned, what you asked about, how is it to be CEO of the company? Well, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's, it, you just need to do three things as CEO, right? So you need to make sure that the, that you have great people and that they're happy. So that's number one. You need to have a, a, a vision and a mission so that you say that's, we're going to go in that direction. And yep doesn't mean if you're right or wrong because if you're wrong you just adjust the direction i needed right. to learn that right? yep. and the third thing is you need to make sure that there's enough money right? yeah totally. and to execute that vision that's it those three things is that's it that's what you need to do and um uh, and that's a lot of fun and that's great but it's like i think the, the thing that i'm the most proud of in the company is just the people 
It's yeah. just amazing people in the company that we work with. And they're so smart on all different terrains from, we have researchers in the company working on, on new types of vector indices. We have, we have uh, people working on education, like how to okay. work with Reviate or how to build Gen AI apps. We have the growth team making sure that people is, are aware of what we're doing. We have, the, 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 yeah, God, there's so the, the people working on the cloud service, right? It's just okay. a, that's a tiny team managing thousands and thousands of, of, of instances that are running. It's just, wow, these people are so smart and they're doing it so well. And it's just so great. So it's a, and I'm sitting like a little, you know, walk around that a little bit and then help people to be, try to be successful. And so that's that journey. And, but you know, it just, infrastructure is just great. It's just, it's just a great business. It's just nice. I love how you describe how your role being a CEO versus the co-founder, but you did not get the chance to describe about your company. Do you have to... Uh, describe your company for, especially for those uh, listeners who may not be familiar. Oh, guys, do. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, 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 um, so, uh, uh, the company is the company around Weaviate the open source database. So, Weaviate is an open source vector database, and um, um, the reason that vector databases exist is around the whole these vector embeddings coming from machine learning models, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we believe is that database needs to enable people to build applications end to end, right? So rather than just pure doing vector search, we also think you need to be able to store data objects. You need to do filtering. Um, some people use the modules that we have if they, if they like just to do vectorization for them, those kind of things. Not everybody does that, but you can. And, um, and, and we've hit the companies is like build around that to basically monetize on the open source product. So that can be in the form of uh, running the database for people, services around the database, uh, <laughs> all those kind of things. So that's that's what the company does. So we've the company is the company around the open source vector database we've had. I really like the idea of the open source that built the monetization around the open source. I think we have seen a number a number of successful cases over the year, especially the last couple of years. How did that business model come to you that that is how you want to build with it, being where open source and then build the monetization around it? Was it a natural progression or was it more like maybe an advice from a mentor or advice from uh, one of the board members? If you don't mind, do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the answer is very simple. I don't know how to do it any other way. Uh, I, I don't know. What, so when we talk about infrastructure, so, so building infrastructure is, is complex and, and you need to build a community that helps you, uh, and that tells you what they need, right? So they go, hey, if we want to do this, we need to do this or that. And open source is just a great way to get there. Um, is it possible in a closed source way? Absolutely. I mean, people are showing, are showing that around us, right? There are people doing a great job at that. I just don't know how to do that. It's just, that's not my, so I've been in open source for such a long time. That is just, I'm used to that. It's a, it's a, 
um, um, let me give you another example. So if you are open source, if your company starts open source, then the culture that you're creating is a culture in the company, I mean, is a culture around what I like to call open by default. So there's nothing about the product that people cannot talk about because it's open source. So you can lie about it. You can't um, pretend something about it. You can't because it's open source. But so that means that the company turns into a, and the people you, you, that join the company and, and that, that, you, that you gather around you, but then the people are just very transparent because it's a, it's a, um, uh, there's, you know, if you, if you, if you lie about something, people can point at something on, on GitHub and go like, that's not true because you said this, but look, I see something else right over there. And um, that's how I like to build a company. And so open source is just a very, a very, that just comes very natural to me. It's just, it's, it's some people, some, sorry, some companies are so close source that yeah. they don't even have the documentation publicly <laughs> available. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I don't know how they build the company. I just don't, I don't know. I mean, they are, they're successfully doing it, but I just don't understand how they do that. I, I only can do that with a something public, you know, that is public facing. That is just, I find it easier. Well, over four years now, at one point, did, did that occur to you at any point of these four years to say, maybe I want to switch to closed source <laughs> because it will make my life easier. Did that ever occur to you? No, no. <laughs> Short answer is no, no, never, no, no. I'm, I am, I, I have not made up my mind yet about the new, um, uh, how are these things called again? These, these, these public code licenses. These, these. Uh, nah, I'm, I'm. So what, what HashiCorp is doing and Elastic and those kind of things. I, have, I haven't made my mind up about those. Yeah. But the thing is this, the thing is this, if you, so everything comes at a price, right? It's right. a, it's a, um, you, you can't do alchemy, right? So it's like, everything comes at a price. So if you open source your technology with the exception of certain types of licenses, like GPL, et cetera, but like we are, we are BSD three or Apache two, what you're basically saying is like, okay, we're gonna use all that niceness that the community brings in, in whatever shape or form it comes. So for some projects that comes in the form of contributions, in other projects that comes in the form of community and feedback and usage and those kind of things that help you build a greater product. So whatever it is for your project, doesn't matter. The, um, um, that gives you, that elevates you early on. And, and then later on in your business journey, you need to, you need to quote unquote pay for that, right? In the sense of it's right. open and open means open yeah. uh, because I think it's unfair to the market to then close it up again. You just need to be smart as an entrepreneur and ask yourself the question, what can we do around that open source uh, core? Uh, not to be confused with open core, but with this open source core, what can we build around that? That we say, like, okay, this is how we want to capture some of that value that we're creating can be managed, great managed services, other, other types of services, et cetera, that we can monetize on top of. I think it's very 
yeah, it's just weird to me if you say like, okay, we're going to start something open source, create all that community, make people very happy, and then we're going to close it. That just that just doesn't make sense to me. That's just a, why would you do that? So yes, we're a business. So that means that we need to make, that we need to make money. Yeah. And we, we do that by figuring out the value that we create with the database. How can we capture some of that value? Right. That's, that, that, that's the game you're playing. And, um, I'm, I'm literally, do you, do you have an example of a company that has been successful starting open source and then going to fully closed source and then still be successful? I don't, maybe that company exists, but I have no idea what, which company that would be. I, I honestly <laughs> I don't, don't know. know. Open AI is open source or not, but <laughs> open AI from <laughs> being open AI to uh supposedly the not profitable company <laughs> nft to be what it yeah. is right now i don't know if that is a good example to be to be, to be in terms of the open source <laughs> yeah. i saw i saw a very i saw somebody had a very very funny tweet a yeah. couple of months ago yeah and i'm paraphrasing the tweet but the tweet went something hugging face started as a closed source chatbot company ended up as an open source model platform. OpenAI started as an open source model platform and ended up as a closed source chatbot company, which I thought <laughs> was very funny. That is really- yeah, I find it funny. That's funny, that's funny. But speaking of the other thing though, is that, I, you know, I think one of the things that I see in the market, especially over the last uh, one to two years is that that is so many, Back startup that is trying to specialize in the vector database, which is what what you guys do, right? So does it not concern you? Like being open source means that a lot of these competitor could then stick in, have a look how you guys do things, and then you know and uh, learn about it, and that effectively cut down some of the wrong path they could have overtaken. They can speed up of the things that they are doing. And you could see that a lot of them are raising huge a lot of money as well. That is probably the downside of it. I I suspect I I am not in your business. I I don't know. I I've never been in open source before, so I don't know. But that sort of like crossed my mind. Is well, I mean, let let me ask you a question, right? Let me ask you a question. Yes, please. So let's so you get to so you start. Let's say you start a new startup. Right, so something completely new. Doesn't matter what it is, something completely new. Two options. Do you want to have zero competitors, but nobody using it? Or a lot of competitors and a lot of people using it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. And I'm, so I'm in a weird way, I'm kind of proud of that. Because I remember Jason, when I was like on stages telling people back in 2016, 17, what we could do with these vector embeddings that people were like, huh, what, you know, what's this for weird stuff? So the fact that people now see the light, I mean, that's great, right? That is, that is good. Yeah. I think what I found, what I found difficult was, um, I, we have some competitors that are just doing like a great job, right? So they just, so, you know, that's just this, I mean, the vector databases that everybody knows, or the majority of, well, the majority of fact that it was people know, I just, most of them are doing a great job, 
right? And they try yeah. to figure it out in their their own way. So we do it in our way, others do it in their way. And that's you know good good for them. But I what what I found surprising was that there were also some quote unquote vector databases coming up that didn't really create anything. So they didn't create a database. They they just didn't make something new and they were just riding the wave. And that was something that I found difficult, not per se for myself, but more also from the engineers in our team. We have some people just doing really the hard work. So going from the research to engineering and that kind of stuff. And then that we saw other people piggyback on that. I found that unfortunate. That was like, oh, really? Is this now a thing? Is it okay to do that? Right? So it's a, and this is a very uh, heuristic, you know, thing to be annoyed about. And that's like, that's helping nobody. <laughs> like, it's just, a, it's just, it's just, but that was what I found unfortunate, right? That I was like, really, is this now a thing? Yeah. But for the rest, people are just trying to figure it out and as well as they can. And and same goes I for guess. us. And and that just, you know, that just it's still it's so early. So it's just still also playing out and stuff. Nice post. And thanks for sharing. Have you ever received comment like this on your LinkedIn post? Now, if you do, I bet you're not paying much attention to those comments. Now that is something really special about when you make the effort to do commenting or an engaging with your prospect and because a comment, a proper comment, an insightful comment could spark a genuine conversation, share personal experience and offer valuable insight that can be a game changer. Now, this is where generative AI can come in, streamline, streamlining and enhancing our prospecting effort in ways that we never thought possible. So are you interested in discovering how generative AI is transforming commenting into your next social media strategy now I invite you to join me at the european chatbot and conversational ai summit i'll be diving deep into how generative ai is reshaping social media marketing and prospecting through commenting so head over to episode description to find more information and register for this event i'll see you there bye that is so true I like your analogy. I think that reminded me the analogy of the argument about how people were pirated the Windows uh, operating system and Microsoft doesn't give a shit in some way. And then how people are pirating the Nike shoes and Nike doesn't give a shit in some way because those pirated copy get this on the head of more people and it's actually helping to create a bigger branding and a bigger market as well and i feel like it's the same thing for what we do as well uh while we were the first one to to come out the product i think there are probably about 50 or 60 copycats right now in, in the market and i just kept telling the i have to tell the team that is is it is okay it means that we are probably onto the something right right we are we are doing something yes. right why right? there are so many people copying us and also uh, all of these people are helping us to 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 spread the message, to spread the, the key concept, and we just have to make sure we continue to head into the right direction, and then doing the building the right thing, and continue to build the thing that people want. Yeah, yeah, and it's just we just need to 
we just whatever we're working on, we just need to to try to to try to create the best product yeah. for our users and our customers. And and uh, something that I really dislike is sometimes people say things like, "Well, in a new market, the best product doesn't always win." <laughs> and then I, and then I go like, "Okay," and then I and then I'm like, "Okay, so now so what?" So what do I need to do with that piece of information, right? That is like if you have a child that you tell the child, you know, if you're raising a child, they're like, you know, it's not always the nicest people who make the most money. So you can just be, you know, a jerk and just go through life. Of course not. You try to, you try to raise somebody who's a nice person, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, that's the same thing as with building a product. You want to create a great product. And then, and then, and out of that, you bring that to the market and you hope that people appreciate that. They go, yeah, we see the value on this great product. So let us give you some money for that. But it's the, it's the, the only obligation that we have to the market is just, and, 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 and also based on the, on the, the dollars we, you know, we are all raising, regardless if you're building infrastructure for AI or if you're building models. Yeah. You need to try to do your best to create something great of value that people appreciate, and that's the best you can do. And um, uh, and as long as you do that, then one, you're gonna have fun, and then secondly, people will appreciate it, right? So it's like, or not. And if they don't, then you know, then okay, unfortunate, you know, that's an unfortunate situation. But at least you know you had fun in building it. So right. it's a, it's a. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the point is what I'm trying to make, but I think. Uh, to your point, what you said about with in your case with these also with these competitors, yeah, so what, right? So I mean, it's yeah. like it's it's just try to just build the great the best thing you have you can make, and you try to bring that to the right people who might benefit from it, and they might become your customers. And mm-hmm. if you do that, then you'll be fine. While we are still on the topic of the open source, I have got a question for you about the open source community. What is the secret? of building the community, such a community uh, that helped to bring this open source product to the market. Building, building, building a community is already so hard, let alone open source community. <laughs> I'm really, really curious to know why, <laughs> how, how. <laughs> yeah, so I think there are two ways of building a community. Yeah. Maybe there are more. But I'm, I know of two ways of building a community. The first way that you can, that's an option you can take, is um, you can talk down to the community. And what I mean with that is the, um, um, you can show that you're an expert in your product or solution you're bringing by talking down to people. Uh, sometimes you see these these communities online, these open source communities, where it's not a lot of fun to hang around it, but people have to be there because they want to use the technology and they have questions. Um, it's the way how people create content, right? It's very often very complex content, but that attracts a certain crowd, right? That is yeah. a, that, that's one way of doing it. The second way of doing it that resonates a little bit more with me is that you level with your user. So you say like, hey, listen, oh, you have a question? Great question. You always say, always great question. Thank you for asking. Let us help you. So what you see in the WeFit community is we have people always answering questions, regardless how irrelevant or 
simple the question might be, we always answer the question in the same vein as we ask a very interesting complex question. And so rather than having, so to end to your question, like how, how do you do it? I think rather than thinking, hey, people are getting something for free, they just, you know, should wait until they get an answer or whatever you. No. People take the time to log into your forum or log into your Slack or your Discord or whatever you have. They take the time to do that. They take the time to formulate a question, to ask the question. And you should appreciate that and say, thank you very much. And let me try to help you be successful with our product. Yeah. And that's it. And it's also a community is you need to figure out what your community, uh, how they can add value. So for example, in a, a framework like Llama Index or Langchain or those kind of things, I could imagine that the best way of getting help is people contributing python code to that right so like hey i've created something like the integration or whatever in the case of core infrastructure like we've yet we have way more we get way more value of people sharing their use cases and where they get stuck so yeah. that they go like hey we were just we had you know we tried to index uh, a couple of uh, hundreds of millions of data objects but that distributed over different charts and different, you know, multi-tenancy settings, God knows whatever they're doing. Yeah. And that failed. There was like an issue there. Oh, yeah. thank you so much. We were not aware that this was a use case. Can you share the error logs? Can you share the stuff? And then the core team can develop something because we know that if that open source user was so kind to take the time to let us know that in the future, we're probably going to have customers that are going to run into the same issue. So the, the, the open source community is always a little bit ahead of the, of the customers because you see operating a database at scale is hard. So people who already do that, they're probably not going to become your customer. Or if they become your customer, they're not going to become a big customer because they're very smart and they know how to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, or they work at a tech company where they have like a big, you know, DevOps team or whatever, right? So um, so to, to get back to your question, so I think how to do it is um, figure out how how do, do you want to be as a company? Do you want to talk? Yeah, that sounds so negative, but do you, do you want to talk down to people? I mean, like, do you want to show expertise by saying, we know this stuff, you don't? Or do you want to level with your community and say, like, hey, let us help you be sure. successful? And then, and if you choose the, the latter one, then always be grateful that they take the time to ask you a question or, or um, you know, and, and, and that it gives you input. Oh, yeah. And the last thing is you need to try to capture as much as information that you get from them. So what's their use case? What they're building? How are they using it? What are they doing with it? Why are they doing that with it? Why were they successful? Or were they not successful? All those kind of things. Capture all that information. That is a good one. I'm going to remember that. Now, you describe uh, Weaviet as an AI-first software infrastructure. How does it differ from the traditional software framework or infrastructure? Yeah, so the 
I believe that if we look at the infrastructure or let's specific, let's be specific about databases in general, we kind of had like three epochs in time. So epoch number one was kind of won by um, the oracles and the Microsofts of this world, right? So that was like the first epoch in, in um, OLTP later turned into OLAP, you know, with the snowflakes of this world, etc. So there was like a, a next wave. There was the first wave, I mean, the first epoch. Then we got a second epoch, and the second epoch was everything around um, uh, anything else that you can do that was not SQL, i.e. the NoSQL wave, right? Yeah. So because it's not SQL. So now the pessimistic view of what's happening now is that you could say, well, you know, the vector database or that what we like to call AI native infrastructure, blah, 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 is, um, uh, um, is, is just part of the NoSQL wave. Right? That's one way how you could look at it. It's just, it's not a data type. Therefore, it's not, it's not SQL. So therefore, not NoSQL. you could do that. Or you can have the optimistic view and you can say, well, no, um, we believe that everybody will be using models in the future as a starting point to develop new applications. And therefore new infrastructure is needed um, um, uh, to interact with the data, right? So things that we now see coming out of reg and generative feedback loops, et cetera, is a completely different yeah. way to interact with your data. And so therefore I'm arguing there's a third epoch happening and that is, it's not SQL, it's not NoSQL, it's AI native. Right. So it's like it's all AI based, and and uh, the models sit in there. Model serving sits in there, but the vector database of Weaviate sits in there as well. So um, that's how I look at the at the landscape, and that is why I like the terminology AI native infrastructure. So AI native means it's not that the that machine learning is sprinkled over the uh, um, whatever we're building. No, it means that it sits at the core of it. It's a completely new wave of applications that could not have been built yeah. without the models. I, I so agree. And especially like you pointed out in your blog article as well, uh, we are, I think everyone is probably thankful of OpenAI in terms of the chat GPT that just suddenly make all of these whole generative AI that everyone is so excited. And as a result, that these vector, we all vector database, uh, et cetera, all benefit from it. And there has been so many innovation, a lot of uh, new things that people are trying to do. I think chatbot is probably the most uh, cited cases. But based on what you guys do at Weaviant, what is the most interesting use cases that you have seen or you have heard or that you think that that probably is a really good idea? Yeah, I am extremely excited about something that we've started to call generative feedback loops. That yeah. is something I'm really excited about. Yes. Uh, my, my, my colleague Connor wrote a nice blog post about this on the Weave blog. And so what the generative feedback loop does is this, it's an extension of the, of the RAG, retrieval augmented generation uh, yep. use case. Because what we do in RAG is that we say, okay, we query the vector database. Yep. The reason we use a vector database for it is because we have a semantic search query. Right. Um, yeah. We re we retrieve a couple of documents. We 
um, uh, make them part of the of the of the prompt. That's like the primitive way of doing rag, right? But that's like make a part of the prompt, and we generate something out of that the rag case, right? What the generative feedback loop does is that it it doesn't end there. What it does is that whatever gets generated with the generative model is stored back in the vector database with a vector map. So now we can give prompts to the model to query the database. So we can say, you query the database, you can say create data in the database, read data from the database, update data in the database, or delete it. So as I always like to, to say, it's like the biggest problem that we have in databases right now is the famous dodgem of like shit in, shit out. Yeah. Right. But I think that the generative feedback loops will enable us to, as I like to say, you know, turn chicken shit into chicken salad. And to basically say like, let the model help you clean your data and your data sets. That's what the generative feedback loop does. And that is something that now people slowly start to adopt. And I'm very bullish on that. I'm, 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 I'm very excited about it. And I hope that 2024 will be the year where this gets adopted. So just imagine that you have a data warehouse with just mediocre data and that you need to hire an army of people to try to fix that, that you can now say, no, we're going to use the generative feedback loops to solve that for us. I'm, I'm very excited about that. I, it raises a question though, that the, this idea about the generative AI feedback loop that you are embedding, you are inserting back about the generated uh, answer back to the vector database. Do you straight away insert and save it back? What happened if it, or if, what happened if that has hallucination? Is it, aren't we not making it worse? If the if the generative uh, uh, answer is hallucinated, how do you control that? How yeah. do you avoid it? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I mean, that there, there's a, a pragmatic and a theoretical answer to it. So the pragmatic the pragmatic answer is that um, you can just apply another generative feedback loop. So mm -hmm. you can say you can say generate something for X. It generates something, stores it back. And then you can say, is this piece of text that's generated for X correct? And then the model sometimes could say like, no, it's actually not correct. And then you just delete it again. So it's like, that's how you pragmatically, how you could solve it. Theoretically, um, I think that we are in a, getting into a time where um, a binary, representation of data is becoming less important and it's more like what's in between. What do I mean with that? We notice that the, the things that people generate with the generative models are sometimes very, the questions that they ask from the models are very uh, subjective in nature. Yeah. So yeah. But let, let me give an example. So in that article that Connor wrote, we work with Airbnb uh, uh, with the Airbnb data set. And it based on um, the name of the listing and those kind of things and the name of the host and the price of the listing, it generates a description. And the description is something like, write a nice description about. That's very subjective. So it might be wrong. It might make a mistake on representing prices or the name of the host or the dimensions or the number of rooms. 
but that's often not the case right so that's often correct in that it just it just might generate something of which you think well that's not a nice description but how are you going to measure that right so that's yeah. very hard to do so um my point is is that this is automating away a lot of tasks that are currently done by humans by people who can make similar mistakes so um a long story short is that i think that it doesn't matter that much so it's a um, we just need to have these descriptions that are descriptive of the information we give it and if it represents that information correct then that's good then that's something we we can use can i try a different idea and i want to see how that goes sure. with airbnb example yeah, sure go 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 yeah my thought that is maybe is not the I, I i think i a different word that i probably would use to the to replace the subjective i, I think subjective is the right word but the other word that came to my mind is the bias and what i mean by that is that i know that airbnb is one of the biggest player in in the in the in the market in the world but still, it doesn't represent the entire market of the short-term rental, including those travelers. It only captures a certain part of the of the market. What I mean is like it captures a certain characteristic of the market. And because of that, it it tends to skew, it has that data bias in, in one way or another, because it's not the full population. So uh, a different way to describe that is that, like for example, where insurance company, you have the insurance company that post, uh, they try to position themselves as a premium insurer in the market. Then you have the insurance try to say, we are, they are the cheap, they are the affordable. So unless you can combine all of them together and they get the data from all of these, the full population data of all of these insurance company, there will always be a data bias coming from just one company. Yes, true. But the, <clears throat> the thing is, it's always, it always sits in the eye of the beholder, right? So if you, let's say that you have all the data on the, um, uh, on the expensive insurance company, the high-end insurance company versus the, on the price fighter, right? The chief insurance yeah. company. If you now say, if you ask a model, give me the best insurance company, right? Yeah. I'm just not providing it enough information about me to skew that in any right or wrong direction. I need Correct. to be more concrete. I need, I need to say, for me, it's very important that um, it's not too expensive, but um, I don't know, dental care is very important to me. Can you give me the best insurance company? Exactly. And, and now it will might skew in a complete, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now it might say, well, you know, if it's important for you, that's not too expensive and dental care is very important for you, then we got to define best as the insurance company that's not too expensive and has dental care in their in their uh, uh in their offering right so it just depends on how 
how clear you are in defining what's important to you. And I think what I find more interesting is that one of the things that we can start to do with, um, uh, with, with, with machine learning is that we start to become better at capturing information of what people really want. Let me give you an example. I, and I might be paraphrasing this, so I might be wrong a little bit in the, in the, in the details, but um, the, the story still holds. A couple of years back, I was at a conference in New York and somebody from Netflix spoke at the conference. And um, he, this was just after they gave a lot of money to Adam Sandler to make movies, right? The, the, the Pac-Man movie and that kind of stuff. But the first thing that they made that was very successful was the um, House of Cards. Yeah. So the yeah. political drama. And he explained to us, and I forgot who it was, but it was like he explained to us that he said, in the early days of Netflix, you might remember that if you signed up for a Netflix account, you had to say, like, okay, I like this series, I like that series, I like this movie, I like that movie. You needed to proactively do that as a person. And what turned out that the movies that people were selecting were very um, high-end, right? So they had political dramas and, and his, you know, documentaries. They, so they wanted to show that they were like very you know, sophisticated people. So that was like how House of Cards was born, right? High-end actors doing political dramas because that's what people say that yeah. they like. Then they started to do something else. They became more sophisticated in how they measured. So they still ask that question, but they now also start to measure what do people actually watch? Yes. Like what are they actually looking at? Correct. Turned out they look a lot of crappy movies, right? <laughs> so now all of a sudden it became more interesting for them to actually, uh, you know, give money to Adam Sandler to make certain types of movies. Now, I might, I'm paraphrasing this, I might be wrong in the details of the story, but the point that I'm trying to make with this is, back to your insurance example, if you ask people what kind of insurance do you want, they might give you an answer, that's not really true. Yeah. Um, of course they want to have the high-end insurance, of course they want to take good care of themselves, but maybe the behavior shows that they are, that they just actually want a cheap one, right? <laughs> and so the more data we have that we can feed to the models to make a, you know, to skew bias in the right direction, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the more interesting it, it, our future will become, how the systems help us make decisions. So, you know, right. it's a right. uh, bias will always be there because that's what the models do. They make biased decisions. But uh, I'm not, I actually think it's a good thing rather than a bad thing. You know, the Netflix story that you just described reminded me of how the changes of the algorithm in the social media for a company like TikTok. Have you heard of that story? Mm. Uh, have you, yeah, you but I mean, for the listeners, yeah, for the listeners, you might want to wanna, wanna repeat it because I, I think that I know what story you're referring to, but please go ahead. Absolutely. So uh, have you heard of this company called WeChat? in China. Yeah, so WeChat yes, of course, yes. is your first generation of the mobile app, uh, social media in China. And they also have things like called Moment 
and moment is built on the algorithm that is similar to like Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube in the old day where they continue to show you what you tell them that you like. And then that come, but that is a problem, right? Because because of that, what you see that people share or people like on WeChat, like for example, me as a meal, I have to say, I have to like, and I have to share the things like, for example, those motivational video, motivational code. I can't quite, and because my friend, my family are seeing those moments, I can't quite like or share the things like, you know, the girls in the bikini, <laughs> very, very little, the sexy girl. I can't do all, do all of those things. No matter, and no matter, even though I actually spent a lot of time <laughs> watching that kind of video or that kind of photo, right? And then that came along with, with TikTok, where they say that, you know what? It is different. We should measure on how much time people are watching or reading something. Like, for example, if we go back to the example of like young Bill, typically they spend a lot of time watching the, the sexy video, the girl wearing very little, and they never click likely because they don't want people to know. But that is what they, they, they like. As a result of that, TikTok will then, instead of showing what you just click like or what you share, they will actually show you what you watch a lot. So that is really the subtle change of the algorithm. And that, it, that changed the way how they are able to engage with people. So I thought that is a very similar story of that point you should share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's like, so I think, so there's a nice, um, there's an, uh, um, a science fiction writer, um, uh, Bruce Sterling, who has a great article. And that, that, that article is um, the, uh, let me see if I can quickly see the, uh, the yeah. Oh yeah. So the title of that article uh, article is "Whatever Happens to Musicians Happens to Everybody," and um, what he the case that he makes in this in this it's actually talk. The case that he makes in his talk is that he says changes that are happening through digital technology to society. If you want to understand what those are, look at musicians first. Oh. And this kind of has to do with you know, it's like a very fragile business, right? So, so music, the music business. And the reason I bring this up is because it's related to your story, because um, back in the day before the internet, you had a lot of radio stations. Yeah. And uh, one of the types of radio stations that you had was smooth jazz. I love smooth jazz, that horrible music. And the, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, and the reason you had a lot of smooth jazz channels was because when we're, people were surveyed and people asked, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? One box that a lot of people checked was smooth jazz. Yeah. So people were like, oh, if people listen to smooth jazz, then we need to have a lot of smooth jazz channels <laughs> right? because that's, yeah. But people were actually not listening to that stuff. They just filled that in on the surveys. So then when we got like the Spotify's of this world and the Apple Music, uh, Apple Music's of this world, we could actually measure what people are listening to. Yeah. And that's super interesting because that was not a lot of smooth jazz. Right? <laughs> so um, it's fascinating. And so 
the fact that we're able to measure more closely what people actually do and what people actually like, we can build better products and you know better services for you know for people. And and if you don't like that, then you can always opt out of it, right? So it's a uh, um, uh, and again, so ML plays an important role in that because it just can help us make these decisions in what we should show people or what people want to consume. So you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting, interesting times, interesting times. I agree. Market holds the power. Love it so much, Bob. Before we finish the yeah. uh, interview with the, my final two questions, anything else you would like to share about your work, about Vivian? Yeah, so I think, so we have a lot of exciting stuff coming out. I mean, this is a little bit timely, right? So in like um, uh, how we um, uh, position the factor index, what people can do on disk and for the memory, right? So. Um, a lot of new integrations coming with the new models. So I would highly yeah. recommend people to follow us like on the social media channels because there's a lot of exciting stuff happening and uh, yeah. I don't want people to miss out on it. So uh, that's that's what I that's what I would say. Absolutely. So for the listener who are listening to this, you can find all the social media channel and also the community in the article where I will be sharing. Uh, highly, highly recommend that. My, so these are my final two questions for you that I ask every single one of my guests. Number one, what is your most important first principle? <laughs> uh, go with the flow. Go with the flow. Oh. Yes. Okay. Do you want to elaborate why? Yeah, sure. There's so much... Um, randomness and noise in the world that one way to navigate through all of that is just go with the flow so talk to people listen to people interact with people and they tell you what they want and yeah. uh and and so it's it's a it's a state of just you know um being in the now observing what's happening and then go with the flow to the next step observe what's happening and rather than because another way i mean you can be very stubborn i mean there have been people being very successful in life by being very stubborn but it also makes life very hard so um my first principle is like just observe go with the flow and just keep going yeah i heard you especially with uh, the health challenges that I recently have, I feel like I should probably do a little bit more go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I, uh, I hope you're feeling better. I am much better now. <laughs> what is one book Great. that you okay. read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Um, so... Ooh, um, so I'm 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 now reading a lot of more like spiritual books that I find interesting, but I I wouldn't that's a little bit heavy for like to end a podcast with. One book that I like to give to people is that new book from uh, Rick Rubin. It's um, called A Creative Act of Being. Um, it's about creativity, and it's not only about music; it's just creativity in general. So it doesn't matter yeah. if you're building a business or 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 writing software or making music 
and so I would recommend people to check that out. It's a nice, it's a nice book, and it's also not that heavy. It's it's a nice, uh, it's also now with the, uh, you know, with the holidays coming up, it's a nice gift. <laughs> I think I need that when I'm finished trying to search for a new way of uh, doing what we are doing, especially in terms of the gold market. Uh, I keep asking myself, what are the ways that we can do differently without spending a lot of advertising money? Not that we we spend any advertising money. But I think it's so important the, the distribution chain. So I'm gonna check that out. Now, thank you so so much, Great. Bob. It has been a wonderful and very nice uh, podcast interview. I really get to know you and the company a lot more. So thank you so so much for sharing this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation, hit that subscribe button so we can meet again. If you don't, I'll be stuck in an infinite loop. So. Pull that part by clicking the subscribe and help me out. You can further support us by leaving us a kind review from wherever you are listening. At the end of the year, I will choose a reviewer to send a special gift to, and it might just be you. I look forward to seeing you here next week for a new adventure. If I can find my way out of this endless loop. See ya.